Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Today, how have race and class shaped our cities and our schools? That's the question being asked by the award-winning podcast School Colours. Now in its second season, the acclaimed documentary series looks at the issue in public schools in New York. Our guest today is journalist, organiser and educator Mark Winston Griffith. He's the co-host and co-creator of School Colours. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Mark, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for being our guest on Just Solutions. Sure, it's great to be here. Well, as we heard in the introduction, the School Colours podcast, season one, and now we're in season two, it looks at the dynamics of race, class and power through the prism of what's happening with education in schools in New York. And season one really looked at what's happening in Brooklyn schools. Season two takes us to Queens. First of all, I think many viewers and listeners would be surprised to hear about the reality of school segregation in the state of New York. And I think many people think of those type of terms um, when it comes to maybe southern states and not a state like New York. But in fact, a report in 2021 from the Civil Rights Project found that New York schools were the most racially segregated in the country. And this followed on from many years of New York leading the country in terms of racial segregation. So take us through the issue that you were trying to examine, one of the issues in the podcast. Mm. How segregated and what does segregation look like in public schools in Brooklyn and Queens? Sure. So as you said, the first season uh, took place in central Brooklyn in a particular school district that um, takes up about half of Bedford-Stuyvesant, a little bit of, of Crown Heights. And those uh, are historically, I guess you could say, historically uh, segregated neighborhoods. And what we did back then is we traced the history of that se- that segregation. But ironically, in central Brooklyn, you have um, a moment, we're in a moment where it's becoming heavily gentrified. The neighborhood is becoming less uh, African-American, which it has historically been, and more non-Black. And so in that season, we looked at not only the segregation, but the tensions around sort of the reintegration, if you will, of the schools there with white folks living in the area and, and getting to a point where they're starting to send their, their children to public schools in the, in, the, uh, in the area. What we looked at in this season is what might seem on the surface to be a contradiction. The idea of a school district in Queens, um, District 28 in particular, that happens to be very diverse. That is, if you look at the demographics there, Um, In the school district in particular, you have large amounts of Black, white, Latinx, and and Asian folks, at least as the census defines those those racial groups. And yet at the same time, what you find (laughs) is not only a long history of segregation, um, but in particular, you have mostly Black folks living in the southern part of the district and not really going to school with anyone else. Um, in those other racial categories in that district. So you have, um, particularly in the North, you have white folks and Asian folks oftentimes um, going to school together. 
as you go as you go further south, you find there's a, a Latinx population, and they're also intermingling with with different folks, black as well as white and Asian. But the black section of the district, and and it's important to note that the district does not capture one neighborhood, but in fact many different neighborhoods. And so what we looked at was how can this exist? How can we both be how can this area both be segregated and be diverse at the same time? And that's that's that was the exciting part of this exploration is looking at that contradiction. And I think it is so interesting and in how you really dig into it and, and the the form of the podcast, it's documentary style, it's narrative form. You've got incredible voices from the communities to explore the, the layers of nuance that, you know, encapsulate all of these issues. You're talking about gentrification, power, class, race, what's happening in, you know, these boroughs in New York anyway and how that then is you know reflected then in the school district and what's so interesting I think it was the first episode of season one somebody says that Queens New York is categorized by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most diverse place in the world and yet we're talking about segregation in schools and so how is there such disconnect albeit this is incredibly complex but is there a sense as to why then in such a diverse area, there's such disconnect and segregation in the schools? Well, it's interesting because what we do through the course of the series is really look at that term diversity and how it's been used. And it can be used to both obfuscate certain things as well as point to, to other things. So when we first approached a lot of people in the North, and, and I guess I, what we should do is back up and really set, set, set the context for the season for the season two, which is a lot of what, what happened was in New York City, many school districts were able to apply for what was called a diversity grant, a diversity planning grant. And the superintendent in Community School District 28 had applied for this grant. Um, back in 2009, they received the grant and um, by the time they received it, the, the superintendent had left and the people who were part of the leadership and other folks who were <laughs> in the district, when they learned about this plan, so, some some of those folks, particularly in, in the white part of the district, got up in, up in arms. And what they were saying is, look, we don't need any diversity plan because we're already a di- we're already a diverse district. And they would try out the statistics. They would try out the fact that it's so diverse. And yet what when they said that there was a, almost a willful ignoring of the fact that while it was considered, yes, diverse as district, that black people not only were segregated, but we what we did was we went back generations and centuries to see how that segregation was structural, where the planning of the neighborhoods, where um, there are different instances where there were pl- other proposals to segregate, sorry, to integrate the neighborhood, not just in the schools, but in housing, because the the schools in many ways reflect what's going on with housing. And we see over a, a, a period of time where integration was very staunchly resisted, um, rejected in many instances, and the refrain at all in those moments where, look, we're already diverse enough. We don't need the government to come in here and try to change things. And so what we saw was even 
um, in 2020, when when all the uh, the stuff hit the fan, people were still still saying we're diverse and were either ignorant of um, or did not understand the history and did not understand how they were actually sounding much like people did 50 years, 100, 150 years earlier, who were all who also had been resisting integration. That's something that really came through, especially in that first season, when you do go back decades and decades and generations in right. Brooklyn. And you take us back to Weeksville, which was this historically black neighborhood there that I think there's archaeological traces of it now. And you can you can tell us what remains of Weeksville and how even then, more than a century ago, there were white families already moving into this area. You know, take us to 2022, more than a century later, and you still have those white families moving into historically black, black districts and how that completely changes the demographics, right. changes the class structures, and then subsequently changes what's happening in the schools. Take us back to Weeksville. Many people won't have ever even heard of this. Sure. And what I was just talking about um, was in season two when we were in Queens. So now you're going to, to season one in in Brooklyn. And Weeksville was a free black community um, that uh, really grew in the 19th century um, and w- uh, became a place where entrepreneurial and middle-class Black folks, well, I, sh- I shouldn't say just middle-class, it was actually a very diverse area, um, economically speaking. But what we did was we went back to this free community in Weeksville and went through the, there's actually a, a center that's dedicated to the preservation of, of Weeksville that exists in um, Crown Heights today. And what we looked at there were similar attempts, you know, we, we looked at how back then there were attempts to integrate um, areas where white people were actually looking to come into the black schools and vice versa, and where you saw, um, again, resistance to that. And it had echoes when we when we looked at what was going on um, in 20, at that time, which was 20, 2019 and 2020, we saw, we heard echoes of that. And so one of the things that, one of the reasons why we uh, looked at history is because we know that the past is not actually the past. The, the the past is very much the present, and it was it was really interesting to hear um, some of the same arguments, some of the same resistance, some of the same language that we heard coming up in terms of uh, attempts to integrate in. Um, the the 19th century, we heard that come up in the early part of the 20th century and in the latter part of the 20th century as well. 21st century, I should say. It's interesting just hearing you talk about that history of the efforts to integrate schools then. It was a huge part of the reconstruction that to have integrated schools. And right. we are not teaching this history to children in schools. Right. I know we've, we've had discussions on just solutions in the past about the need to have this history taught because we are continuously repeating the same cycles. Exactly. But I, I'd love to get your thoughts on um, the relevance to the rest of the country, because I know this is really looking specifically at what's happened in Brooklyn schools and in Queens, but we're seeing 
either efforts to integrate or indeed efforts to further segregate in schools all around the country. And so what lessons do you think New York and its efforts there, what lessons can be learned by other communities? Well, I think that one of the points we were trying to make is particularly in Queens, what we're seeing there, I think, um, is a harbinger for what we're going to see across the country. As this country becomes more and more populated by people of color, you're going to have these confrontations in schools and in housing where people are going to have to learn how to coexist and where people are going to be running up against um, the idea of having to, if not give up, at least share some of the privilege that they have and answer the question, why are schools that are predominantly white um, performing so much better than schools that are predominantly black? Um, and when you, and so, I mean, we're, we're talking about two extremes, but when you start to filter through other racial considerations, whether we're talking Asian, we're talking Native American, whether we're talking Latinx, um, there isn't, integration is not proposed for the sake of simply putting people's bodies together. The whole point of integration is to make sure that we have schools that are equitable, where the, 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 they result in people getting um, uh, access to opportunity as a result of those schools. And what we're seeing across the country, still throughout the country, is that opportunities are, used, are oftentimes determined in public schools. And so what we're seeing today, as far as these conversations around CRT um, and book burnings, for instance, are all resistance to this idea of having to examine racism, to examine why we have different um, outcomes in schools and the attempts to try to build equity and address these things. And, And folks who have enjoyed this privilege for such a long time are really fighting against it. And what, what's interesting is what we learned in, in, in District 28 is that peop, as people were resisting, they really resented the idea of being called racist or that they were or that they were contributing, contributing to racism in institutions. And you've heard this refrain throughout history. And when you don't know your history, then you don't know to, which, to the extent to which the institutions you're a part of have a racial have a racist history, and you don't have a complete understanding of why when you act in a certain way or say certain things, you're a- actually helping to perpetuate that racism. Now, you don't obviously you don't think of yourself as racist, and you don't think of your actions as racist. And when people suggest that you're racist, you 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 buck back against them and say, How dare you call me racist? Um and what in in in, in that moment, what gets glossed over what gets lost is the reality of how institutional racism works in this country, particularly in schools, and how it has consistently helped to define what people's opportunities are in this country. Mark Winston Griffith is the co-host and co-creator of the School Colours podcast, now in its second season. It looks at race, power and class in public schools in New York. 
You're listening to the Just Solutions podcast on Free Speech TV. Find out more about us and watch past episodes at freespeech.org. And don't forget, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Mark, you were talking there about how people get so defensive. When I say people, white people get so defensive when race is brought up in any context. And it's, not, it's not just white people, I will say, but but anyway, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. <laughs> Okay, people, but I think especially white people. And it reminds me of that. I'll I'll misquote. So I paraphrase Malcolm X when he was talking about segregation in school districts in New York. He said white liberals love to point their finger at southern states. You need to look at what's happening right here in New York. So how do we break through that? I mean, what did you hear from these extensive meetings that you went to? There's such extensive reporting across both seasons of school colors. You're going to these community meetings. You're speaking with parents what were you hearing from parents from you know from all backgrounds on this particular issue well i think first and foremost uh, there were a group of people who believe and understand that segregation is one way in which we limit people's opportunities And that in New York City, there was an attempt to build mechanisms to fight against it. And so you have a a community of people in New York City, um, and this is multiracial, who, again, are fighting for integration, not because they're looking for some kind of kumbaya moment where all of us are holding hands and, and singing together, although, you know, they may believe that. But really, they understand that as, as you, if you have segregated schools, you will also, again, have limited opportunities for many of those people who are, are segregated. So you had those folks. Then you had people who were living mostly in, in the northern part of the district. And I, I don't want to paint folks in any one with one kind of brush, because there are people who fought, who, who had there was a diversity of thought, obviously, in the north. But what you had in the North was the most um, aggressive pushback against this this idea that there could be a diversity plan that could change the structure of the the school district. And what we heard from those folks is like, we don't need you here. Um, The... You're... You don't understand our lives. We moved into this neighborhood because we 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 moved into this neighborhood because we want access to great schools, and we don't want you getting in the way of that. Um, I'm not racist. I love all people, um, and yet um, there's no there's nothing to say that I can't. We can't. You the problem is not segregation. The problem is that you, the Department of Education, have not. Uh, established schools that work for everybody. So don't bother us. Go to the southern part of the district where schools are not working and you fix those schools and you don't mess with us. And then, you know, um, you had people in the southern part of the district who quite honestly did not get all that excited about any of this, either, either for it or against it, who have heard segregation, have heard integration efforts before and have battle scars around it and don't really believe in them very much. 
and don't believe at the end of the day that white liberals are going to do the right thing. Um, and so what you heard uh, for coming from the southern part of the district was actually a deafening silence. Um, folks either didn't know about what was going on um, with the diversity plan or just didn't care that much about it and were not invested in its outcomes because they just do not believe in the promise of integration um, and you know, would just as soon be left to, to their own devices. Or you had people who are just really going for self. They're saying, look, you know what? I know the best future for my child is a school outside of this, just outside of my black area, maybe in another part of the district. And I'm just going to have to do what I can for my family. I'm not really concerned about what goes on beyond that. So you, I mean, you know, for every person who lived there, you had a different point of view. And we tried our best to capture those different points of view. But I think what was the unifying message is that there just was not a critical mass of uh, people. A There was no big groundswell of people who were saying, we want this to happen. And I think that either is a failure of past integration uh, efforts, or it's just people not wanting to change the status quo. The system works for them just the way, just fine and dandy. Their children are get to, get to go to good public schools. They they get opportunities, and they don't want any of that messed with. Well, you, you talked there about past integration efforts. I've mentioned there that some viewers and listeners may have experience of busing because that was one of the integration right. methods, not just in New York, but in many, many school districts around the country that led to a huge amount of pushback. And I think at the, the heart of, of busing was this effort to integrate. And so, you know, in season one, I believe you have somebody who shares a very visceral memory of being on a bus and being right. surrounded by a really angry white mob and looking in their eyes because they did not want these kids being bussed into their schools. Right. And there you have a very visceral and a very explicit articulation of, of racism. Um, and, you know, what's different from uh, what happened in New York and other, in other parts of the country, uh, like um, Boston or, 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 or areas down south, you did not have the same kind of government enforced and government sanctioned uh, busing in, in New York City um, that you did in other areas. But even the, the, the efforts that did occur um, that were taken on by school districts or taken on by New York City were ag aggressively resisted. So now you, you cut ahead to today and what most of the people who were resisting the diversity plan were saying is like, we don't want our children bust. Now they did not say for the most part, we don't want black people in our neighborhood. These are mostly liberal folks. Those words would never come out of their mouth. What they did say is we now enjoy being able to walk to school or be able to, to have a, a short commute. We don't want that disrupted. We don't want, because to be fair, District 28 is a very big district. And so the idea of you having to travel to another part of the district to go to a school was a big threat to people. So it was never articulated in the same ways like, oh, we don't want black people coming up here. We don't want to go down there. But people did say things like, um, we will not travel for to, to just so we can go to a 
uh, a low quality school. Now, they didn't say we don't want to go to a school where black people are. They said we don't want to go to a low quality school. And, and that was shorthand for we don't want to go to a school in a black or Latinx area that we're going to presume is going to be um, substandard. And by the same token, um, we don't want the schools that we have that we've established. We don't want the ecosystem, the educational ecosystem that we have that we have moved into, that we have purchased a house for, or we have very aggressively made a beeline to come into this neighborhood because we want these schools. We don't want you to disrupt that ecosystem here. And busing represents for us a disruption of that. It means moving people across the district where in a district where I moved to, to this particular neighborhood because I want to be in very close proximity to this school. And so now what you're saying with busing is that you're going to mix all of that up. You're going to disrupt all of that up. You're going to disrupt that. And that's not what I moved to this neighborhood for. Well, Mark, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I do want to let people know that, um, you know, you have a, a relationship with Free Speech TV. You're a former board member, but you're also yeah. the associate director for Anti-Racist Partnership and Transformation Adapt. And that's part of, you know, Free Speech TV's efforts to look at what's happening and to to examine, you know, our own structures and, and many educational institutions, media institutions, in fact, really all across society are, are doing this. But what would you like people to take away from the podcast in terms of this moment that we're at right now in society where there is more consciousness around anti-racism work and the need to have these conversations? Because as we have been examining here, it's nuanced, it's complex, it it's not going to get solved overnight, but there is, I believe, a moment that we're at right now where people at least want to talk about it. Sure. I, I think that we need to, I, I think that season one and season two are great learning moments for, for everyone. You know, it's funny too, because at the end of season two, we asked someone point blankly, um, you know, is, is, are, if everyone were to listen to this, to what extent would things change? And this was one of the, the main characters in our storytelling, a woman by the name of Venus Ketchum. She said, well, it's nice. And I, I listened to it and some other people like me listen to it. But even if everyone listened to it, I don't think it's going to change much because at the end of the day, it's got to be about action. Right. So I do think that listening to something like this is a precursor to action. It's a way of understanding history and understanding how our arguments have to be much more sophisticated. Right. Because it's not enough to. If you consider yourself an anti-racist, it's not just enough to reach across and point to someone and say you're racist because they're going to react to that. Um, and it's not going to be effective in making the point most of the time. What you have to understand is not only history, but how to break through those narratives and how to get people to um, react to and respond to you in a way that may not include you pointing a finger and calling some race someone racist may may, may be much um, be might be much more sophisticated now obviously there're going to be a moments where people are going to show their ass uh and you're going to have to say you're being racist because there's no other way to to frame it um but i think that we're in a moment now of where the arguments where people are being labeled um as being politically correct or being woke, 
and being um, really marginalized by that. And so we've got to figure out a sophisticated way to unmarginalize our, 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 our self and to mainstream our arguments and our efforts. And so I think that knowing the history, knowing what the arguments are, knowing what people are on different parts of the the of the argument, the understanding the sophisticated way they're making their arguments, I think can enable you to actually take action. Mark Winston Griffith is the co-host and co-creator of the award-winning School Colors podcast. The second season is available through Code Switch on the NPR platform, and season one is available wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more at schoolcolorspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Just Solutions podcast so you never miss an episode. For Free Speech TV, Just Solutions, I'm Maeve Conran.